Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was charged with the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. As Rittenhouse was the undisputed shooter of all three men, his legal team argued that the shootings were in self-defense. At the end of each week, I am joined by a guest to help us distill and further examine what we heard in trial that previous week. This week, my guest is Abby Smith, who serves as professor of law and director of the Criminal Defense and Prisoner Advocacy Clinic at Georgetown University. Together, we'll explore a number of the issues that were raised by the courtroom events that we covered this past week. My conversation with Abby is coming up right after the break. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And now, my conversation with Georgetown law professor and criminal defense attorney, Abby Smith. Abby Smith, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, my pleasure. So let's start with the Uber view of this case. As a criminal defense attorney and a scholar in that area, what are your observations about the peculiarities of this Kyle Rittenhouse trial? Well, first, let me say I've been a criminal defense lawyer for nearly 40 years, which is a little bit shocking to me. I've practiced in a number of different jurisdictions, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, New York, Washington, D.C., and I feel like I've seen a fair amount in criminal court, but this case was so unusual from the start in terms of the race of the accused, the context in which the alleged crimes occurred, and frankly, for me, the judge's behavior was unusual. You know, how can I resist saying the verdict was rather shocking? Had it been one of my usual clients, I'm a career indigent criminal defense lawyer, I cannot imagine a world in which one of my clients who are disproportionately black and brown, since I'm an indigent criminal defense lawyer representing poor people accused of crime, I can't imagine any of my clients, a 17-year-old African-American armed with a semi-automatic rifle arrives in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and is walking the streets with this rifle slung over his arm, and who then proceeds to shoot three people. I can't imagine a world in which that young man is acquitted, as Kyle Rittenhouse was. That's a good segue into my first specific question, which is during the February 11th hearing, which we heard during episode two, attorney Kim Motley, who was representing the families of some of the victims, let's call them, in this case, brought up another trial involving a black man charged with a double homicide, and his bail was set at half a million dollars more than Kyle Rittenhouse's. We noted in the episode that Judge Schroeder seemed to be tempted to address this notion that Kyle Rittenhouse was receiving preferential treatment as a result of his skin color, but then appeared to avoid the confrontation on that subject. What were your thoughts on that? Did you feel that in reviewing the audio? 
I had a very strong visceral reaction that I got from the judge that it became personal for the judge, and he reacted very defensively. I think he kind of missed the point. He turned it around and rejected any suggestion that he would make any rulings based on the color of people's skin. And he went into a kind of free associative rant about Plessy versus Ferguson, which seemed so odd to me that that case has nothing to do with the issue that was before the judge. So I think he became oddly indignant at the suggestion that there was unequal justice with regard to bail. The other thing I thought was unusual was, in my experience, it's very unusual for victims' lawyers to be allowed to speak at a bail hearing or, frankly, any other proceeding in a criminal case because they're not a party to the case. They're representing essentially a witness or a decedent or the decedent's family. And it's the state of Wisconsin against Kyle Rittenhouse. Those those are the two parties. And so I thought it was interesting that she was allowed to make an argument. I, I thought she made a rather compelling argument. I think the judge took it the wrong way. I want to move back to a kind of larger macro look at the case and examine the tension, which is sort of an understatement, between Judge Schroeder and the prosecutor Thomas Binger in the case. Do you believe that that tension and that animus was one-sided, or do you think that Binger made some strategic decisions or tactical decisions that incited Schroeder's response to him? I actually was impressed with the lawyering in the case, and I was especially impressed with the prosecutor. I thought he was smart, articulate, measured. I don't think he did anything to incite the judge. Everything was handled in a very lawyerly manner. Even his request to increase bail was, frankly, modest. He wasn't seeking to revoke bail altogether. He wanted to increase the amount in view of Mr. Rittenhouse's conduct post-release. It was interesting and unusual for me. Look, you know, there are some judges who are harder on prosecutors. By and large, judges tend to be harder on the defense. There's something inherent about tension between the bench and lawyers who seek to raise issues and who tax the court's efficiency and economy. I mean, after all, judges have an interest in getting things going and moving things swiftly. And quite often, the defense is not down with that program. We mean to raise issues. And so oftentimes, because of that, because of the tension in those two roles, and frankly, because of where most judges come from, it is pretty rare in my experience for judges to be so hostile to the prosecution. And I thought the judge was in this case from the start. I feel like the judge was doing some of the job that the defense lawyers could have done and probably expected to do. There was a lot of back and forth between the judge and Mr. Binger that felt adversarial as opposed to judicial, in my view. But I don't think that the prosecutor did anything to invite that. I really don't. I think he was making his case. He was citing law. He had perfectly good reasons. When he took exception, he did it respectfully. So I, I thought it was sort of odd that the judge got his hackles up more with the prosecutor than with defense counsel. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In the next part of our conversation, Abby Smith and I move on to discuss Kyle Rittenhouse's behavior while out on bail. Do you think that Rittenhouse's behavior after posting Bond, wearing a free-as-fuck t-shirt, drinking underage, being serenaded by the Proud Boys in a bar, and throwing up hand signs, that that would justify ordinarily the prosecution's motion to set the Bond higher? The context is really important in discussing bail and whether Mr. Rittenhouse might have been in violation of the conditions of his release. The most important thing in my mind and in my experience, is that he's facing two counts of homicide. So he's alleged to have killed two people, and he's alleged to have intentionally attempted to kill a third. Those are the most serious charges a person could face in court. And it's somewhat remarkable in my experience for a defendant under those circumstances to be released at all. I mean, it's kind of stunning. Now, the bond was set pretty high, and yet it was apparently pretty easy for that amount to be raised by Mr. Rittenhouse's various supporters. So he's out. And then the question becomes for me, what were the conditions of release? And conditions of release run the gamut. Arguably, conditions of release shouldn't impinge upon the First Amendment. You know, they shouldn't include that a person can't engage in lawful protest. But I have to tell you that I've represented a number of people who are alleged to be involved in Antifa. And when they've been released on bond for what are largely property crimes, the destruction of property, throwing stones or breaking windows, both in the World Bank protest and the inauguration of Donald Trump, there were a series of incidents in Washington, D.C. There were conditions that prohibited those defendants from engaging in any sort of protest and for engaging in any sort of activity with Antifa. So that's the example that comes to mind for me. I I don't know whether Mr. Rittenhouse was released under conditions that he not engage in right-wing hate group activism or that he not associate with known members of those groups. It's interesting because while the prosecution included exactly what Kyle Rittenhouse's behavior was in their motion brief, the basis on which they sought to raise the bond was the fact that Rittenhouse had given them an address that he was not living at as a basis for raising the bond. And I think Schroeder zeroed in on that fact, as did the defense attorneys, and denied the request on that basis. But in a larger sense, Schroeder also appeared to have no idea who the Proud Boys were. And when in our third episode, we explored the prosecution 
prosecution submitting a motion to include evidence of Rittenhouse's involvement with the Proud Boys, Schroeder appeared to have no idea who they were and dismissed that motion unless Binger and the prosecution could demonstrate that it in some way related to the August 25th shootings. You know, ordinarily a T-shirt that a person wears is protected speech. You know, do I think it was bad form on Mr. Rittenhouse's part? Yes. If I had been his lawyer, would I have allowed him to wear such a T-shirt to the extent I have any control over my client's behavior? No, I would have said, get rid of, take that T-shirt off right now or turn it inside out. But do not be brazen. This is a case that has garnered national attention and you're out on bail. Even though bail is specifically mentioned in the Constitution, it's a privilege, not a right. And, you know, don't thumb your nose at the court. Likewise, the people he was associating with, I would have told him, don't do it for strategic reasons. It's a bad look for a case in which clearly the defense wanted to portray him as an idealistic young man who wanted to protect storefronts in the streets of Kenosha, Wisconsin. In addition to thinking about the cases I've represented where my clients were alleged to be members of Antifa, I I also think about cases involving criminal defendants who are alleged to be part of gang activity. And, you know, can there be a condition of release that says you're not to associate with the Bloods or the Crips? Probably. And if a prosecutor found out that there was a defendant facing very, very serious charges who was associating with leadership of gangs, that, you know, would I be surprised at a hearing? No. On the other hand, those things that the prosecutor was most relying on are unusual. The prosecutor had to hang his hat on the failure to provide a current address to the pretrial services agency or whatever the agency is in Kenosha, Wisconsin, for monitoring a person's release on on bond, because that would be an express condition that you have to keep in touch with the court system and let them know where you are and let them know how you can be properly served. And so they needed that. Now, in the hearing, that began to seem like a trivial thing. But I think the prosecution had to point to something, some some legal provision in arguing that Mr. Rittenhouse was, you know, flouting the court's rulings or, you know, not taking this matter seriously enough. And that that suggested that he was either a flight risk or a risk of danger, because those two things are the two central criteria of bail decisions. With regard to your second question, let me talk talk about the judge's reaction to the prosecution's argument that an association with leadership of the Proud Boys by Kyle Rittenhouse on not one, but two occasions, one in Florida and and one in Wisconsin, that that was concerning. I found it surprising, at the very least, that the judge seemed to have no knowledge of the Proud Boys, who are kind of well-known now. They became well-known in the course of the Trump administration and have become even more prominent since. I thought it was kind of bizarrely parochial for the judge to make fun of the prosecution's reliance on a Seattle newspaper. You know, it's not like it's small town newspaper. It's, you know, not as if the prosecutor was making something up, but the judge kind of chose to mock the prosecutor's argument based on one of the sources the prosecutor was relying on. Of course, there are many, many sources that the prosecutor could rely on in suggesting that the Proud Boys are an organization that has embraced violence that sought to overturn the election 
and that urged its members to show up at protests involving Black Lives Matter movement members and others to shake things up and, you know, engage in acts of violence. I, I don't I was, I was frankly kind of surprised. I would think a judge presiding over this particular trial would make it his business to educate himself about what's going on in the world. The prosecutor stepped into it, I'm afraid, even more when he followed up his defense of using a newspaper story out of Seattle with a reference to a New Yorker magazine article, which was actually a very comprehensive and thoughtful article about the Proud Boys. But I think he had already lost the judge by then, and the judge would have also rejected that magazine, if not, you know, based on it being the New Yorker or being a magazine as opposed to a local newspaper or, you know, maybe something more mainstream or conservative. I'm not sure what the judge was looking for frankly. I mean, I was surprised that the judge didn't care a little bit more in view of the fact that here's a guy out on bond facing potential life prison sentences. I think most judges would have been appalled and concerned because of how serious the charges were. That's what makes this different. I mean, if the charges had been disorderly conduct in the course of a protest or even property damage that the prosecution was calling looting, then then maybe a judge would not take the conduct that Mr. Rittenhouse had engaged in, you know, engaging in a kind of revelry at the fact that he was a defendant in some serious cases. I mean, I think maybe if the charges were less serious, the the judge wouldn't have cared that much. Let's move on to the question regarding Judge Schroeder's ruling on the language to be used to describe individuals involved in the trial. It made national news when he decided that the injured or the deceased individuals would not be referred to as victims. And then later in a subsequent motion hearing, he ruled in favor of allowing the defense to use terms like rioters, looters, arsonists, provided that they could provide some evidence that would support this. In your practice in the various jurisdictions where you have practiced, what is the norm with respect to terms like this? And where did Judge Schroeder's ruling fit on that spectrum? That's an interesting question. I think the judge had it right when he prohibited the use of the word victim. That question is a central question for the jury to decide. Was there a criminal perpetrator and was there a victim? And oftentimes defense lawyers will move in limine, that is, will move prior to trial to prohibit anybody, witnesses or the prosecutor, from using the term victim. Frankly, defense lawyers much prefer when it's a living alleged victim who's going to be testifying. We prefer the term complainant. It's sort of perfect. It has its own narrative. Complain, complain, complain plain is the free association that ought to come to mind. Victim is inflammatory in addition to being the question that the jury's supposed to decide. So I don't disagree with the judge there. I thought it was interesting that he didn't even allow alleged victim. That's where he went further than most judges ever go, in my experience. Alleged victim is a perfectly sound phrase to use, especially when there are dead people, because the alternatives are kind of odd and cold in the vernacular of criminal court. They, the people who've been shot then become decedents. And so I thought he went a little far, but I applaud him for not allowing use of the word victim. As to the judge's ruling with regard to what to call the alleged victims in this case, I think that suggests 
a very defense-oriented narrative that the judge embraced really early on, before any testimony occurred in the trial. Looters, rioters, those are very pejorative words. Demonstrators, protesters, citizens, those are not pejorative words. At the very least, there could have been a phrase, I think, that the prosecution and defense could have agreed upon to describe the people who had taken to the streets in response to the killing of Jacob Blake. So I think that kind of set the stage. There was a concern, it seems to me, throughout the pretrial litigation about blaming the victim in this case, which the defense tried to do pretty explicitly when they sought to introduce the criminal record of Mr. Rosenbaum in the trial. Sort of a classic move, it's not unusual, it's not surprising, to try to dehumanize the central prosecution parties or characters. The decedent, usually a decedent, is a very sympathetic person in a case. I wasn't surprised that the defense moved to introduce Mr. Rosenbaum's criminal record. I was frankly surprised that the judge gave it so much airtime. He indicated at first in response to that motion by the defense that he was inclined not to rule in their favor. He called himself biased, which was sort of a strange word for a judge to use. It's one thing to say, I'm not inclined. There's very little support in law for such a motion rather than calling himself biased. In the end, I think he ruled in the right way about not allowing the defense to introduce the record of Mr. Rosenbaum, but I think he, he ruled incorrectly and frankly really put his thumb on the scales of justice in favor of the defense by allowing them to refer to the people who had taken to the street to protest the killing of an unarmed black man by a police officer. Calling those people rioters and looters was just painting with such a broad and pejorative brush as to be not a dispassionate ruling, which is what judges are supposed to do. They're supposed to make thoughtful neutral, dispassionate rulings, not weighing in on one side or the other. And I think the judge kind of betrayed his bias in that ruling. I have one last question for you. And it's sort of hearkening back to the question I asked earlier about the prosecutor, Thomas Binger, and his approach to the case. And I want to pick at that a little bit more because as we'll come to see during opening statements and some of the tactical decisions made by Mark Richards, who's the lead counsel for Kyle Rittenhouse, that Richards appeared to be very carefully reading the room, reading the judge, reading the jury. And Binger had experienced with Schroeder. It felt like this was some carryover from some previous encounters between the two. And I wonder whether you see any flaws in having Binger be the lead prosecutor on the case, given the tense relationship between him and the judge. I may not know enough to weigh in on this for two reasons. I'm not privy to the history between Mr. Binger and Judge Schroeder, though I have certainly experienced, even in big city practice, what happens sometimes when there are repeat players. So in my own experience, there certainly are some judges with whom I've had some tension and judges with whom I have a very good relationship. Sometimes it can feel personal. And I imagine in Kenosha that a prosecutor would be a kind of classic repeat player and maybe there's some bad history there. I also wasn't in the room 
And I think I'd need to see the judge's facial expressions a bit more. I, it's hard to tell just from the audio. There you know, was palpable tension between the two of them that I could read from their voices, but I can't tell whether the judge meant to be scathing without really seeing his face. And I think Mr. Binger was actually a very artful trial attorney in the way he laid things out calmly and coolly. I think he was trying to persuade the judge, and that's what persuasion is for trial lawyers. We're generally not thinking about appeals, and certainly prosecutors don't think about appeals. They think about prevailing at trial and making sure the record is clean, that there's not too much error, but they want to persuade the judge in the moment. And I think that's what Mr. Binger was trying to do. You know, Mr. Richards, he did a nice job, but I could imagine some judges would be put off by his manner and by him trying the case to the general public, which was the sense I was getting from Mr. Richards, that at every turn he was attempting to put his theory of defense kind of out there in the world. He must have used the phrase self-defense at least a dozen times, kind of trying his case before a jury of the public. A lot of judges would have found that to be grandstanding. I think Richards was much more the grandstander than Mr. Binger was, which may be fairly typical for the roles that defense lawyers and prosecutors tend to play. Here's what my theory is. And, you know, it's a theory based on my experience and what I've seen so far of the trial proceedings in the Rittenhouse case. I think Mr. Binger thought he had a slam dunk. Now, I know he was aware of the complexity of the case. You could feel it. But prosecutors get kind of used to winning. And even though this was complicated, very well-funded, and in many ways, well-lawyered case, I'm sure Mr. Binger has won many more cases than he's lost. And I imagine he thought, you know, this kid, this underage guy who wasn't licensed to carry a gun of the sort he was carrying, a semi-automatic rifle, comes from one state to another to get himself involved in something where he wasn't asked to come. He didn't have to come. He wasn't a member of the National Guard. And he ends up shooting three guys, killing two of them. I think Mr. Binger probably thought, come on, you know, who couldn't win this case? And so I think he was operating with some false confidence, maybe even a little arrogance. And I think he didn't read the writing on the wall, perhaps as well as Mr. Richards did. Now, I say this, though, not wanting to be a Monday morning quarterback. There's nothing worse for those of us who are criminal trial lawyers to have somebody else weigh in who hasn't been in the room. I'd need to know much more about the demographics of Kenosha, Wisconsin, and who exactly was seated on that jury and what their thoughts were about what was going on in Kenosha, what their thoughts were about law enforcement, about the Blake case. And I just don't, don't know enough to weigh in about whether he was reading the jury right. And prosecutors and defense lawyers in a jury trial can largely bypass the judge. Indeed, sometimes we end up engendering jury sympathy and a kind of alliance with us, you know, as lawyers. 
an alliance that is between the defense counsel and the jury when the judge seems to be hammering us much harder than the prosecutor or, you know, mocking us or overruling all of our objections. Juries can tell when a judge has a dog in the fight and they don't really like that. So, you know, that can happen. You can play the jury and bypass the judge. So, you know, I guess I'd be interested to know whether Binger was reading the jury right whether or not he had a good relationship with the judge. That makes sense? It, it absolutely makes sense. And we've got a bunch of weeks ahead of us of covering this trial. And we will together explore that information, the demographics, sociopolitical makeup of Kenosha, and the tactics and strategies that both lawyers use in relating to the jury as distinct from the judge. Can I say one more thing? that for whatever it's worth struck me about this case from the very beginning. And I may have more to say about this as I listen to more of the trial. But, you know, I I understood from the start what the defense theory was. There was a fairly compelling narrative they were attempting to paint, that this was a kid. It was a kid who was concerned about Kenosha because he actually had some ties there. He worked there. His dad lived there. That he was alarmed about what was happening there. And he wanted to be helpful. That prosecution at the very beginning didn't have quite such a compelling theory of the prosecution. I think they were worried about the victims. They were worried that the people who got killed weren't so sympathetic. That's really unusual for prosecutors. Oftentimes, they have a pretty natural and powerful narrative. What I kept thinking about in just contemplating the defense theory was the Lee Boyd Malvo case, the young man who was connected to John Muhammad, the convicted sniper in D.C., Virginia, and Maryland from Gee, it's more than a decade ago now. But Lee Malvo is still serving a life sentence in prison without the possibility of parole. I mean, in some ways, he had a more compelling narrative. He was under the thumb of a charismatic older guy than Kyle Rittenhouse did. And, you know, my mind goes to that case because this case is is just kind of saturated with, with race. It's hard to talk about the case and not talk at all about race and about the narrative of an innocent white teen who brings a very serious military style weapon onto the streets of a you know small city in the US that's i think that's why the prosecutor might have felt so confident who does that who's ever seen that and yet apparently that story you know seems to have captivated both the judge and the jury and seems to have captivated the judge early on Abby Smith thank you again for your time i look forward to doing this again as soon as you're available Great. Thanks, Carrie. That concludes this weekly recap episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Join us next week as we begin our examination of the October 25, 2021 pretrial hearing in which the prosecution seeks to prevent testimony from two potential defense witnesses. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. 
Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our guest on this episode was professor of law at Georgetown University, Abby Smith. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik. It was edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and trial audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.